You're listening to the City World Radio Network, high-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world, www.cityworldradio.com. Good afternoon. Welcome to Intelligent Talk with Ralph McElvenny. Join us every Thursday at 5 p.m. on the City World Radio Network as we discuss topics in politics, art, and current events. Okay, well, welcome to Intelligent Talk. The website is intelligenttalk.com. We're here with Dr. Richard Hansen, who's the chief archaeologist of El Mirador. El Mirador is a major Mayan ruin in the northern part of Guatemala. Um, I didn't know particularly a lot about this until I heard about Dr. Hansen was able to read about it, and I thought it was a, a very interesting topic, and we're very like, uh, lucky to have Dr. Hansen with us. Uh, Dr. Hansen, thank you for coming on the program today. Thank you, Ralph. Good to be with you. Thank you. Now, you're at the University of Utah, Dr. Hansen, uh, archaeologist? Yes, uh, I'm a uh, professor of anthropology at the University of Utah. And you've been working at this site since the late 1970s. Is that, is that correct? Well, no, not, not really. I've, more, I've worked and excavated in 51 cities in the Mirador Basin. But I started at, Mir, at, at El Mirador in 1978 and 79. Okay, so basically, so, 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 so really uh, 40, 40 plus years. That's 40 long. years. 40 years, yeah. That's. Uh, that's why I need a serious psychiatrist. <laughs> well, I know. I want to get into all of your struggles and what you've learned in just a second. Just uh, a lot of people may not really realize, and I just want to quickly say, um, the Mayan civilization was basically the first great pre-Columbian civilization, and then later on it was the Aztecs and the Incas who were sort of around at the same time. Is, is that correct? Uh, yeah, but the Maya grew much earlier than the Aztec and Inca. This is uh, a society that goes back... Uh, uh, we have occupations as early as 2600 BC in the in the area, so we know that the um, the Maya one of the they're the, by far the most sophisticated ancient civilization in the Western Hemisphere. Okay, and um, what you did, Doctor Hanson, what obviously you made many contributions, but an important contribution is you showed the Mayans were more advanced by excavating El Mirador in the pre-classical period than they were previously. In the pre-classical period, as I understand it, like 2000 B.C. to 250 A.D., is that about right? Yeah, about 150 A.D. is when we find the big collapse occurred uh, when they totally abandoned those big cities. But yeah, that's about the range of the pre-classic. Uh, and the classic period is from about 300 A.D. to 900 A.D., which everybody had assumed was the pinnacle of complexity in the, in the Maya civilization. That's why they call it the, the classic period. The greatest demographic densities, the greatest amount of uh, structures and big pyramids and monuments and stele, hieroglyphic writing, and polychrome pottery were all indications of complexity in the classic period. Right. So when you started at El Mirador, you you weren't aware you were going to make these discoveries, right? This is something you gradually learn. I guess I think you analyzed the pottery, and that showed you the age. Is that correct? That's one of the ways you knew. Well, that's true. The, the I was a I was a student invited to, to work at El Mirador by uh, Ray Matheny of Brigham Young University and Bruce Dolan of Catholic University in Washington D.C. And they were doing work in in the uh, going to start doing work in the area. They discovered these strange lines going across the swamps, and they were in, in, interested in investigating this city. Um, and uh, at the time, of course, the 
was thought to be a classic period site. In fact, Ian Graham, who was the first uh, scholar to ever get into the area in 1962, thought the site was was classic, but in ruinous condition because they must have used poor mortars or uh, uh, you know not the not the not the great. Uh, sites like Tikal, where they had beautiful buildings, these were much more ruinous condition. They attributed to poor mortar, but the in reality is a thousand years earlier. Right now, just so and, people don't, uh, well, don't realize, Tikal is another great Mayan site in Guatemala that's much more <laughs> visited than your site because your site is is hard to get to, and I um, and that's obviously has helped you and hurt you in various ways. But just to go back to the site, um, I, obviously one of the things you did is you you discovered what I think is the largest pyramid in the world. You call it La Danta in terms of volume in in that area. Yes, I mean that's yes, an amazing. How did you the, measure the that? Site, this site and the other areas of the of the of the basin. Uh, the Mirador Basin is a circumscribed uh, geographical and geological phenomenon. It covers southern Campeche, Mexico, and northern part of Guatemala, north-central Guatemala. It's surrounded by a ridge of hills. It's completely surrounded on all sides. It's clearly defined by satellite imagery uh, and infrared imagery. We can see this very, very clearly. And it's dominated by seasonal swamps. But these buildings um, uh, are are in an area where nobody would construct today because of constant because of the concentration and density of those swamps. This happened to have in this area the largest and earliest ancient cities in the Maya world, and not only that, but the pyramids are the largest in the world in terms of volume. Now, this is calculated by um, by measuring the levels of these of this big pyramid called Danta. Which means tapir, by the way, since it since it is the largest animal in the forest. The Chicleros named it that about a hundred years ago or so. At any rate, this building is um, six hundred meters at the base and three hundred and thirty meters wide, which is um, if you use meters as yards, it's a little more than six hundred yards, three hundred yards wide and seventy two yards high, which makes it the largest single pyramid at two point eight million cubic uh, meters of fill or cubic yards of fill, uh, which makes it the largest pyramid in the world in terms of volume. However, um, we never tunneled this building because of the size of this thing, so there could be undulating bedrock underneath it that may vary that one way or the other. Dr. Hanson, I have so many questions, but just to start with one, the swamps, as you said, the area that is in, why did the Mayans pick this area to build because of the swamps? Was it, they were able to master that and use the soil well for farming or use it for water? Or Could you explain why they settled there? Well, that's a great question, Ralph, because um, there's a beautiful lake uh, um, to the south called Lake Peten Itza. And this beautiful lake, uh, 24 miles long, would have all the water they would want, all the fish they could catch, all of the uh, beautiful breezes coming across the lake to cool down the city at night. It would be a wonderful place to build a city. But no, they're out in the swamps, in the most distant location from a river or a lake you could possibly get in Mesoamerica. And the reason for that was precisely because of those swamps. And the, and they what they were doing, these are grassland marshes. At the time, now they're tree covered because of sedimentation and the evolutionary process of those swamps. But at the time, they were grassland marshes. They're very mature swamps, uh, very mature lakes that were grassy, marshy, and the Maya were mining the mud 
from these swamps and hauling it and putting it into terrace systems, which gave them incredible agricultural capability. These rich organic swamp mud, uh, muds and mucks were uh, so rich that they were able to plant the same piece of ground for a thousand years by just renovating the field with another little layer of mud. You renovated the field, and they could plant the same terraces over and over and over again, which gave them the incredible wealth that they need to construct and organize what we believe to be the first state-level society in the Western Hemisphere. Okay, great. I want to just uh, drill down more into the Mayan society. I mean, you, I heard you talk about the Mayan, the ramp system. We talk about the Autobahn in Germany or the Eisenhower highway system in the U.S., but you talked about, uh, in a lecture I saw, the, the, the Mayan ramps. Could you explain? I mean, these things were huge, these, these ramps connecting buildings. They were, what, 60, 70 meters wide and just huge structures. Oh, yeah. The, these are, you're talking about the causeways. Maybe. Yes. The causeways were uh, the system, the lattice work of roads that were constructed by the Maya that are two to six yards high and 40 to 50 yards wide, which were connecting all these cities together, and they were paved with a lime cement. So they had all this incredible uh, orchestration of, of huge highway systems that linked all these cities together within the confines of the basin. We notice that these roads don't go outside the basin. They stay within the confines of the basin. Uh, and... Um, uh, the uh, this was to, to join all these cities together and form that incredible uh, development of a state through unity of the polities. And, uh, you know, in the U.S., we came into the Industrial Age because of the Transcontinental Railroad. And then we have the freeway system that unites us all together and keeps us more of a homogeneous uh, society. A product that lands in New York is in three, three days is in Los Angeles and vice versa. So it keeps the same kind of, um, of uh, orchestration of, of the movement of the economies of the state and exactly the same thing that the Maya were doing 2,500 years ago. They were, they were building these huge highway systems that linked all these cities together and allowed them to move products and, and supplies and product, uh, uh, social products, economic products, um, in, in among themselves as well as military capabilities, and that allowed them to um, develop this extraordinary complexity of society. I know the Romans obviously had roads that crisscrossed Europe, and they had obviously greater length, but in terms of just sheer majesty and size for a highway, would you say the Mayans were arguably the most impressive in the world? Well, undoubtedly. I mean, the Roman roads are a meter and a half wide. They're not wide enough for chariots. Right. The, and the Inca had huge highways, but they're all foot traffic. Uh, these highways were also foot traffic, but they were paved, and we have up to um, uh, about, uh, right now, about uh, 400 kilometers of causeways that we identified within the basin itself. These are incredible um, constructions because they're elevated. And even in the upland areas, they're elevated as well, meaning that they could be seen, any kind of a procession could be seen, any kind of products moving up and down these highways could be seen. And keep in mind, the Maya had no wheels, no carts, no chariots, no beasts of burden, no horses, no oxen, no donkeys. None of this was able to, to, to use this as sheer human foot traffic. But because of the quantity, the density of populations in this area, they had highways this wide. You and they, were, uh, they, they made a lattice work of extraordinary complexity 
Um, and uh, in, in reality, they're probably the largest single constructions in the in the Maya world. Other than, I mean, Dante's a huge pyramid, but when you calculate the volume of these incredible lattice work of, of causeways, they're probably the single largest construction we have. You mentioned population, Dr. Hansen, and, and I had read that the population of El Mirador was something like 200,000. Is that your understanding? Yeah, that's uh, that was the initial guess we had, guess we had um, because of the concentration of big buildings that are contemporaneous. The uh, Dante is just one of thousands of buildings that are contemporaneous at the middle and late pre-classic periods of time. So to have all this uh, this orchestration, we did the experimental work. We actually hauled and measured and quantified the amount. Of, of soil and rock the person can move in a day. We excavated six quarries, recovered the stone tools from those quarries, and then carved out blocks with stone tools that we replicated and, and carved out blocks and then transported the blocks. So we had an idea of how much manpower is involved in the construction of these buildings. And just, just for, just for example, the period of Dante required between 10 and 15 million Man days of labor, ten to fifteen man days of labor to build this one building. Now, uh, uh, you know, if one person was working, how many years is that? Well, that's forty-one thousand years if one person was building, which gives you an idea of the scope and scale of the labor force involved in this uh, in these constructions, and. Um, it makes the, a marvelous saga of humanity we've never seen before. We've never heard this story before. We've never been able to... We hear all about the great Roman accomplishments and the Greek accomplishments and the Egyptian accomplishments and the Chinese and the Mesopotamians, but very rarely have we heard of the extraordinary accomplishments made by the Mayan Western Hemisphere. Absolutely. And just one thing I heard you say in a lecture as well, that the Mayan civilization was one of five civilizations to fully do writing, discuss writing. Could you just discuss the, the sort of the five civilizations that founded writing as we know it today, the modern? Yeah, well, we call them a founding civilization. A founding civilization is a, is a civilization that develops its own script, develops a script that is um, indigenous to those areas and that they develop as, as true writing systems. The Chinese had done this. The Indus Valley societies of, uh, of India had done this. The Mesopotamians, the Egyptians, and the Mesoamericans, meaning that uh, from Oaxaca to the Olmec area to the Maya area, had developed writing systems very early in their society as well. And the Maya by far took it to the uh, to the extreme. These uh, they had extraordinary texts uh, that. Uh, we now can read the classic text. It's the pre-classic text that we can't read yet. But they are extraordinarily complex writing systems, recording history, historical events, recording uh, uh, the use of pottery, dedicatory phrases, uh, uh, the accession and demise and deaths of kings, marriage ceremonies, etc., all recorded in stone and on, on ceramic and bone and shell, another medium that the Maya were capable of writing on. And this, as well as books, they had the incredible books. Uh, the codices uh, were written um, by uh, by Maya. We have bark beaters as early as 1200 B.C., so we know that they were writing on, on books, uh, paper, 
uh, as far back into the pre-classic as, as we could possibly imagine. You mentioned the Olmec civilization. I believe that existed, what, 1400 B.C. to 400 B.C., and that the Mayans were influenced by the Olmecs to a degree, correct? Well, to a certain extent, they were, they were pure polities, meaning that they were contemporaneous. Um, the Mexicans like to call the Olmec mother culture of Mesoamerica. In some ways, that's, that was thought to be true, but now that we have contemporaneous Maya societies at the same time that are very different from the Olmec, that are very, uh, for Olmec cities are oriented on north-south axis, for example. Early Maya cities are oriented on an east-west axis. So they had, uh, they had, uh, uh, Maya were very, they adopted and adapted uh, much of the Olmec processes, but by the same token, the, the Olmec, adopted some of the Maya practices as well, practices as well, such as uh, what we call an e-group complex. Seems to have been a Maya origin that found its way into Olmec society uh, 600 to 400 B.C. So the Maya were also contributing to the Olmec societies in that way, and they had a, a kind of a what we call a, a kind of a competitive ideology uh, where they were um, replicated, they were aware of each other, and replicating to their uh, their successes um, politically, economically, and socially um, between each other. Okay, and is, I, is, is it correct, uh, Dr. Hanson, that about 51 cities have been found in the Mirador Basin, and you've excavated a map of 51 of them? Yes, we've mapped and excavated 51 cities in the basin, and uh, we've just finished the LIDAR, which is the ra- radar, the laser uh, uh, scan, of the entire basin, which is the largest LIDAR study in, in history of Mesoamerica. Uh, we have now identified hundreds more cities that we didn't know existed that are found in this area. Um, these are extraordinary, um, extraordinarily complex cities. Uh, they range in size from the largest cities in the Western Hemisphere to small villages, but they're all found in this area that are dominated by swamps, an area that would be totally inhospitable to, to occupation today. And in reality, not a single person lives in the confines of the base of the day, other than our guards. So the fact is that why we have such a magnificent fluorescence of complex cultures um, residing in this swampy area is a, a unique phenomenon that we um, are, are enjoying uh, getting that opportunity to see for the first time. We don't have centuries of overburden of later Maya cultures building over these ruins. The, uh, it's a laboratory in that we find this material on the surface. At Tikal and at Palenque and other great Maya sites, they had to dig down, you know, as, uh, as uh, 40 to 50 feet to find to the level that we find on the surface. And um, so it makes a, a great opportunity to peer into this early development of cultural complexity at such an early point in time and see the processes that the Maya did that were that launched them in the stratosphere economically, politically, and socially to find the processes that maintained that incredible dynamic and then to find the processes that took them to collapse and ruin and, and abandonment. Dr. Hanson, just to drill down a little bit into what everyday life was like for a Mayan, I know we don't know a lot of it, we can't read all of their writing, but they, they had a, a, a she-ball, I, I may, she-ball-ball was the underworld lord, is that right? 
Was there underworld? <laughs> they had a they had a hell. Yes, they did. Hell. Balba was the was the hell. This was all recorded, of course, in the Popol Vuh, which is a book found in 1700 in Chichicastenango, Guatemala. It has the story of the uh, of these two hero twins that. Um, that uh, it's a creation story of the Maya, but uh, ultimately the story goes that these two hero twins uh, find out that their father had been decapitated and his brother had been decapitated in the underworld by the evil lords of the underworld. And they found out they weren't farmers, they weren't, uh, they were ball players because of their father's ball player uh, material was still stored in their grandmother's house. So they put on the ball player paraphernalia, went down in the underworld, and ultimately tricked the lords of the underworld, recovered the head of their father, and brought it back, and he becomes the corn god. And uh, it's a wonderful story of the of the creation of uh, from a from an indigenous and autochthonous uh, text that we have uh, in the Maya world. Can I ask, so uh, how were these Mayan worlds structured? Was there a king, basically? And as I understood, the elites kind of lived near near the temples, as I read. Is, is that cor- correct, for example? Yes, that is. We find that the, uh, the uh, more in the civic centers, you have more of the elite living in, in these areas. There was a king. He was called an Ahau, the, the, the supreme king, and members of his immediate family. But then he had a, an elaborate court structure. He had scribes, and you had religious uh, uh, officiators. You had military personnel that were involved with this. You had uh, um, all types of uh, artisans uh, working stone and wood and shell. You had merchants that were bringing in all these commodities of jade and obsidian and basalt and granite. And you had the common, the people... Uh, that sustained and supported this entire infrastructure. So, yeah, they had all the com- the trappings of complex societies um, that were uh, in- involved in royal courts. Uh, they had royal courts and and religious ceremonies, and were astute astronomers, and and undoubtedly had extraordinary knowledge of uh, medicinal plants. I wish we had half that knowledge now, because I think the Maya had a great insight into medicinal plants that are found. In the tropical forests of this area, that's, that's, uh, they that's also had um, extraordinary uh, military capability and an uh, unusual reach of their military, in which they were able to make forays into other parts of Mesoamerica. We have evidence for that uh, in Chiapas and perhaps even the Olmec area. Was was there any evidence of like the idea of like the rights of man and the the, the Enlightenment and John Locke, the social contract? Did any of that come about? Where there were checks on the power of the king? Was there any adaption in, in the hundreds of years that civilization existed? Did do we know if it changed at all? If the king had more rights or less or any change, or was it pretty pretty stable in terms of the governance? Well, it's it's pretty obvious it was a genealogical a genealogical uh, uh, passing of power from father to son, uh, for the most part. But we do have instances in Mayan history where women became kings, not queens, but kings as well, where the royal authority went through the woman into, uh, in the transfer of, uh, of, their, of the power. Now, that's a great question, Ralph, because the actual mechanics of the check and balances on kingship is something that still needs to be thoroughly investigated uh, and understood. Um, in the classic period, we had a bunch of uh, feudal city-states uh, forming in the early classic period and in the classic period. The period we find the most ubiquitous 
a unification of ceramic forms and ceramic types and shapes of pottery is in the pre-classic. Uh, that covers all of the Yucatan Peninsula, all the way to Honduras, is all covered by the same the same types of pottery, the same forms, the same shapes, and we believe this to be uh, the result of the formation of this incredible state uh, power. Also, by about 300 BC, there's an, a, a change in architecture, where the architecture developed a, a what we call a triadic form, meaning these big buildings had three summits, not just one summit like the pyramids that we see in Palenque or Copan or, Hond- uh, or Tikal, but these have three summits on the, on the top. They have a dom- single dominant structure and two flanking substructures that face each other. And this triadic pattern becomes ubiquitous throughout the Maya area in the pre-classic period. Everybody had a triadic structure, and and it was a, it was an ideological um, uh, emphasis on what we think was the creation. They were focusing on the uh, hearthstones of creation, the three hearthstones of creation. So when you when you were able to summit a, a building you were immediately brought into remembrance of the creation and that was being celebrated with this architecture. Okay. Let's let me I'll just bring you up to the present day because you and I had the pleasure of speaking with you last week about this as well. I don't know how much of this you want to say uh, on air, but um, you, you, you have a budget. Obviously, you raise money to, to do these, uh, and you've been very successful doing this year after year. I know you were telling me that, obviously, with increased budgets, you could speed up the process, and you wanted and you had some people from Congress down there recently. But could you tell me just where that stands as far as your, your, your work today and raising money and how people might be able to well, help you? That's the greatest single headache we have because um, right now we're in the race to save this area. Um, the uh, organized crime is laundering drug money with cattle herds and have to have pasture. So they're cutting thousands and thousands of acres per year of pristine jungle for cattle pastures. Uh, and um, so we, we, we know that these ancient cities, the concentration of very large and very early ancient cities are the economic catalyst we need to provide the justification for the conservation of the area. We're never going to save rainforest anymore because it's pretty and green and has monkeys and orchids. The starving, the starving peasant doesn't care. So we have to find the economic models that will involve the starving peasant in the model so he becomes a protector of the area as well as the economic justification to infuse new cash into the country and into the system. And these ancient cities are precisely the model that we need and that we know will work that will justify more employment, it will justify less illegal immigration to the U.S., it will allow uh, 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 allow us to jumpstart the economy of the entire country by developing and preserving these ancient cities in a manner that can be um, <coughs> touristically attractive. Now, the other factor here is that there are um, there is uh, because of the narco presence and because of narcotics trafficking in this area. Um, uh, we have to find a model that will not involve roads or airstrips. And that the best model we have for that is in the U.S. and Canada, where we have wilderness areas. The wilderness area is, is precisely what we're proposing for this area to be, 
because it successfully neutralizes the uh, the organized crime of the area, and that it allows the Guatemalans the capability of protecting and and uh, this area for the next 500 years. They have a, if you have roads, you have invasive populations. You have looting. You have poaching. You have uh, human trafficking. You have uh, um, uh, and the narcotics uh, traffickers would love a road into this system because it allows them to to transfer uh, products uh, without being so easily observed from spy satellites in in space. Therefore, uh, we have uh, uh, proposing that the government of Guatemala form the first wilderness area in all of Latin America. And since that doesn't exist in any of the legislative nomenclature anywhere, they could define what that means. There are no roads, but we will allow, say, a miniature train to take people uh, from the nearest village 64 kilometers into El Mirador and then around to these other of these other cities so that you, the tourists coming in can see a wide range of art and architecture of unprecedented size and scale and antiquity uh, that they've never seen anywhere else. And um, uh, we don't want, we want ecologic to be built in this area, but we don't want roads and we don't want uh, airstrips because it would facilitate the, uh, the organized crime in the area. This then allows the Guatemalans a fighting chance to save this, as well as develop their economies and involve the local communities in the model. I, as it is now, uh, nobody stops at these little villages on the way to sites that have roads like Tikal. Uh, nobody stops at these little villages. They go all the way into Tikal and don't spend a dime. But if we develop this kind of model, we involve the local communities. We need their guides. We need their cooks. We need their... Uh, their facilities to sleep overnight. We need their restaurants. We need their cold drinks. We need their. Uh, we need all the aspects that they can provide, which all of a sudden jumpstarts the poorest people of the country into an economic model. And, and that's that, the whole reason for this. Uh, for this vision is to involve them in the model, which is not exploitive, but con- on a conservation uh, theme that will provide them jobs for the next 500 years. And that's why this is why this is of interest to the U.S. Uh, to U.S. Congress um, and, uh, and of interest to the, uh, the Congress of Guatemala as well. And I know, Dr. Hansen, you've done a lot with, with obviously the money that you control to encourage the local people to you, c- computers and learn and have schools and you've done everything you can. with, with Your budget is something like $2 million a year. Is that right? Well, it ranges between one and a half and two million. Yes, about what it what it takes, but that gives me two to three months in the field. If we had four million dollars a year, that gives us in the opportunity to work year round. So, fifty two months. Uh, uh, I in 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 uh, it, what I could do in one year is what I could do six years under the current budget. So if we can decrease the budgets to $4 million a year, I can generate hundreds of millions of dollars per year for the country. And, um, and, Dr. Hansen, and people, that's the economic model we're trying to promote, to promote here. Do you also, do you accept volunteers, or people that want to just help you excavate for free? Do you, do you work with volunteers, too? No, we don't, for several reasons. First of all, because the government, because of the, the, the severe logistics there, it's very expensive to keep and maintain a single person out there. So as a result, the government doesn't want volunteers. We have three conditions by which people can get involved. 
Number one, they can be, can be a full-fledged student in a, in a degree-seeking program, and they enter to our field school program, so they're actually excavating and getting course credit and class credit for those excavations. Number two, if they're a specialist that we need for diff- all kinds of studies that we're doing, we're doing not only archaeological work, we're doing entomology, herpetology, mammalogy, biology, botany, geomorphology, geology, ornithology. Uh, we work at Cornell uh, Ornithological Labs. Um, we publish books on the insects of the basin. We have more documents that come, and books coming out on this area of uh, these different studies. We're doing the entire spectrum of science here to understand the story. And we have to understand the entire, uh, all the aspects that form uh, an absolute truth. Um, we know what, what we think happened, what you think happened, and then what actually happened. And by involving all these aspects of science, we get closer to under, actually understanding the whole story from the whole gamut of perspectives that are allowed in telling this story. Well, well Dr. Hansen, that's um, it. As we wind down this fascinating interview, um, if somebody wants to contact you or donate money, I mean, uh, what is the best place to help? Is it just to go to you? I know you have a very active Facebook page, um, and you have an assistant there who, who, will, who will get in contact with you. Is that, is that the best way to reach you, or is there a way you... Yeah, there is. Uh, it's MiradorBasin.com. You can go to MiradorBasin.com and, and see. Uh, we have a new web page that's just coming up now, being coming up now on the, uh, uh, in uh, being developed in Miami. Uh, for us, and uh, uh, and or they can contact uh, me. I'm going to send you forms or out that you can have at your disposal for anybody that might have any questions or in, any question this. But fairs-foundation.org or miradorbasin.com will let them uh, see how they can participate and how they become a part of this. I mean, this is we welcome uh, participation. The other third right, other than a specialist, we can. If you're a donor, then we can also have acceptance from the government to allow people in there to allow them work with us to see what's going on and become an active part of this, so that they understand that we're saving one of the world's greatest and most unusual cultural and natural resources. And uh, in five years from now, it'll be impossible to save it if we don't have the resources to stop the in, the uh, invasive cutting. And the massive amount of deforestation is taking place. Um, we, we're going to lose this. And uh, and by all, if we if we maintain the status quo, we will lose this. So we have to we have to jump up the ante a little bit. We have to uh, we have to po- provide the pressures on the government to make the first wilderness area in Latin America. And we have to have the funding to develop these ancient cities. And, and we know where to go. We know which buildings are uh, touristically attractive. We know where the incredible art and architecture are. We know where incredible monuments are that we can expose for public visibility that um, would allow the justification of this area to be preserved in perpetuity. Well, just one, one question. What, what percentage of the site remains unexcavated, do you think? I mean, have you just scratched the surface? Is there still much more ahead of you? Well, we've we've now mapped and we've now excavated and exposed some, some twenty buildings at the site, but that's uh, and 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 before two before two thousand three, we excavated the huge facades of buildings, but the government required that we bury them back up, we we to protect them, but since two thousand three, we've spent uh, fortune in understanding how to use specific mortars and mixtures and uh, and stonework. 
and we have the world's best conservators uh, teaching and training my Guatemalan conservators so that we have an expert team of conservators that are saving and protecting exposing this art and architecture. We now, I'd say, we're just scratching the surface, but we have 20 buildings that can be seen. Right. And what is the average length of time if someone donates and they, and they want to visit you? What's the average length of time someone stays with you for? A few days, three days, something like that? Well, they, they, if you have to spend, uh, if we're out in the field season, um, you would you want to spend uh, three to four days or a week uh, with us if they, uh, which would be a, a welcome thing to have them see and participate and understand all the aspects of the excavations and why all the, the different scenarios of study that we are incorporating uh, in developing in this model. Uh, we have um, we have a, an expert team. We have great uh, uh, staff. And if we go the year-round system, if we get the funding to do year-round work, we're there from uh, we're there at four months at one site and four months at another site and four months at another site, so that we can have in just in, in ten years period of time, I could have seven cities like Tikal or better. In other words, we can have incredible uh, art and architecture um, displayed for the public in a wilderness area concept with access by a miniature train, beautiful ecologists constructed by Guatemalan and, and, and foreign entrepreneurs, and involving the communities, involving the, uh, involving the uh, and saving the, the flora and fauna for the next 500 years. And that's the vision that we're trying to promote here. Excellent. Well, so the website, miradorbasin.com, and um, yes. we just wrapped up and here. Fairs, with... Fairs-foundation.org. How do you spell fairs? How do you spell fairs? F-A-R-E-S, and then a dash and foundation. Okay. Fairsfoundation.org. Well, um, and that will uh, get people in to see the, the web pages, how they can participate, or they can contact me uh, on, a, on an 800 number, one 800 1-800-654-3083. Okay, well, Dr. Hansen, thank you so much. It's been a fascinating discussion with Dr. Richard Hansen about uh, the El Mirador, a site in northern Guatemala that contains many treasures that have been discovered and to be discovered. And Dr. Hansen, thank you so much for coming on Intelligent Talk today. Thank you, Ralph. It's great to have that invitation. I look forward to future opportunities with you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. Have a good day, sir. Bye-bye. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Voted number one jazz cabaret club by New York Magazine, the Metropolitan Room is one of the most critically acclaimed venues in New York City and is known as the home for big-name talents and rising stars. Known as a celebrity hangout, the Metropolitan Room is a high-end cabaret and jazz club and brings the best in live music to New York City every night of the week. Fabulous award-winning Broadway, TV, film, and radio performers take the stage in an intimate 115-seat elegant venue. Aside from the great highly professional artistic shows and audience, Metropolitan Room provides an exceptional appetizer and dessert menu as well as exotic and specialty drinks prepared by top New York City bartenders. The Metropolitan Room is located at 34 West 22nd Street, Conveniently located near public transportation. For information or reservations, call area code 212 
206-0440. Once again, the area code is 212-206-0440. Or go to their website at www.metropolitanroom.com. On Thursday, May 15th, Holy Apostle Soup Kitchen, New York's largest emergency food program, is hosting From Farm to Tray, a sustainable food benefit. To support hungry New Yorkers, please visit farmtotray.org to purchase tickets or make a donation. Guests at From Farm to Tray will dine in the beautiful landmark Holy Apostles Church, a space that New York Times journalist Anna Quinlan named the most majestic dining room in New York City. Visit farmtotray.org for details. See you at the Soup Kitchen. Sparky the Fire Dog here. Protect your family from fire. Make sure your home has smoke alarms in every bedroom, outside your sleeping areas, and on every level of your home, even your basement. For games and activities, go to sparky.org. We want to keep you, your family, and your community safer from fire. This message brought to you by the National Fire Protection Association and your local fire department. Visit sparky.org. On Thursday, May 15th, Holy Apostles Soup Kitchen, New York's largest emergency food program, is hosting From Farm to Tray, a sustainable food benefit. To support hungry New Yorkers, please visit farmtotray.org to purchase tickets or make a donation. Guests at Farm to Tray will dine in the beautiful landmark Holy Apostles Church, a space that New York Times journalist Anna Quinlan named the most majestic dining room in New York City. Visit farmtotrade.org for details. Hi there, I'm Tim McGraw. One of the great things about music is how it brings people together. Kids like to hang out, listen to music, and talk about what's hot and what's not on the music scene. And playing instruments and singing provides a way for young people to get together and interact in a cooperative and respectful way. Kids who play in school ensembles understand that every part has to work together for the result to be the magical art called music. Your local school music programs provide a golden opportunity for your child to experience the rewards of learning music. Why not pay a visit to the music teacher to find out what's going on? Get your kids involved with school music. A PSA brought to you by MENC, the National Association for Music Education, Gibson Musical Instruments, and the National Anthem Project, the campaign to restore America's voice through music education. Music, part of a sound education. If you served honorably in our nation's armed forces and you're looking for a way to continue serving your fellow veterans in your community, then join AMVETS. Each year, AMVETS members volunteer millions of hours at VA health care facilities from coast to coast, helping to improve the lives of their fellow veterans through the VA Voluntary Services Program. AMVETS posts and departments also participate in a wide variety of community service projects, ranging from Americanism in our schools to supporting the Special Olympics and Boy Scouts of America. If you no longer wear the uniform today, you can still serve through the AMVETS by joining today at AMVETS.org. Hi, I'm Janice Ian. Do you remember how excited you were at the start of summer every year and how the summer just started to drag on after a few months and you couldn't wait to get back to school, see your old friends, make new friends, get new books and a new locker and a clean slate? 
Well, you should have been excited about music class, too, because that was a special room where you went to sing, perform with your friends, and learn all kinds of interesting stuff about great composers, instruments, different kinds of music and songs. We remember our music teachers because they were so passionate about helping us learn to love music. They helped to spark a love for listening to notes and voices and rhythms that continues to enrich our lives even today. I bet your kids feel the same way about music class. Ask them and make sure they get involved with music in school and in their lives. A PSA brought to you by MENC, the National Association for Music Education, and the National Anthem Project, the campaign to restore America's voice through music education. Music, part of a sound education. Today's entertainment has been brought to you in part by Galito's Restaurant. Galito's specializes in Portuguese cuisine. In addition to these delicacies, Galito's offers pasta, steaks, seafood, and chops. A full-service bar includes wines, beers, and spirits to complement your meal. Galito's offers casual ambiance at the bar or their dining room. Galito's also has a private banquet room for social events with a party package to accommodate your budget. Galito's also offers seasonal cafe seating. Galito's is located at 29 Elm Avenue in Mount Vernon, New York, conveniently located across from the Mount Vernon East train station. You can call Galito's at area code 914-668-0100. Once again, the number is area code 914-668-0100 for information on reservations or go to the website at www.galitosrestaurant.com. Enjoy your dining experience.